you do with whatever that saying is like what you can with what you got at the time. And, and that I had a rough cut that was 80 minutes. And then uh, one of uh, my other producers on this, he's the editor and producer on this. And he got rid of all my shitty shots and kind of <laughs> saved this movie. Welcome to Bitch Talk. I'm Aaron Lim. This is Ange, a.k.a. Captain Party. And I'm producer Shar. And over the last 10 years, we've been elevating marginalized voices through interviews and events, sometimes over a glass of whiskey. Welcome to day four of our Sundance and Slamdance Film Festival coverage. Today, we're focusing on Slamdance documentaries that are focused on abandoned or ignored towns. We have Cisco Kid and Motel Drive. A big thank you to 48 Hills and our listeners for voting us Best of the Bay, Best Podcast. And now, on with the show. Here we are on the Festival Daily Buzz, recording out of the Treasure Mountain Inn, uh, talking to films at Sundance and Slamdance. My name is John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief of FilmsGoneWild.com with the dynamic duo from Bitch Talk, Angela Tabora and Aaron Lim. And this segment, we're going to talk about the film Cisco Kid, which is screening at Slamdance. And we have the director, Emily K. Allen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We start each episode with our filmmaker introducing our audience to the film. So tell us about Cisco Kid. Okay. Um, Cisco Kid is about a young queer person who, who uh, moves into a desert ghost town in southern Utah, determined to live an unconventional and independent life. Yes, I love Eileen. Uh, first thing I'm going to do when I go home is make a sign for my window that says fuck off. Yeah. Uh, my inspiration. Um, but I, I really like how you, I'm assuming it's you, I, I can hear you laughing sometimes in yeah. some scenes in reaction to that. I, I really like that touch because Eileen doesn't seem like the type of person that would roll with a camera crew and have mm -hmm. this film. So it seems just a lot more intimate that it's, you know, Eileen and, and a friend of, you know, behind yeah. the camera. So was that intentional or did that happen in post? Um, it didn't happen in post. It wasn't what I expected when I was imagining what the film might be like uh, before I went out there. I imagined a very quiet, <laughs> um, you know, more observational, I guess, style film. And Eileen's very talkative and dynamic. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's fine. We'll just go with it. And I, you know, and I'll, I'll have to be a character in some ways, even though I'm not in front of the camera. But you know, that is kind of in line with Verite style and I just thought it was fine. So yeah. <laughs> there are some harrowing moments throughout the filming <laughs> of this doc. Were there moments where you felt you needed to intervene? Um, I'm speaking of a very specific scene, but um, <laughs> that you needed to help Eileen or were you just like, well, this is what's gonna happen and it's kind of, you know, it's gold. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm guessing you're talking about going down in the well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, really? Uh, <laughs> I know. Well, I, I, I set up the show. I sat there filming and I thought, okay, if Eileen really needs me, I'm going to, I'll, I'll drop the camera. But they were fine. They just had to get through it. I think they needed me there psychologically yes. to kind of help them mm -hmm. feel comfortable about going down into this dark, um, I think it's a cistern, actually, but I think Eileen thought it was a well. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't do anything, but I was ready to. But luckily, it was all fine. <laughs> <laughs> Get a hard hat on, ready to. Yeah, <laughs> it was really also um, 
uh, hard, but I'm glad I did it to keep that same framing and not kind yes. of move around, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it worked out well in the mm -hmm. end. Uh, I will take this moment to um, do the um, uh, admission that, of course, <laughs> I'm working on behalf of this film as a, a publicist. So I obviously love this film a lot, as as I've told you on frequent conversations. But one thing we haven't talked about, and I, and, and I love asking documentary filmmakers about this, um, is that moment where you discover what your film really is. Because you start off oftentimes with an idea of, in this case, I'm going to follow Eileen. We're going to sing, see see what Eileen is doing and what have you. And then sometimes, you know, during filming, sometimes during editing, or, you know, that you go, oh, this is the movie, mm -hmm. this, this moment. And, and uh, I, I love having filmmakers talk about that because that yeah. eureka moment is always pretty special. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I don't know if it happened in one moment, but I think... In the beginning, I thought this might be a short film, <laughs> um, but I really wanted to show time pass and I really wanted, I felt like that was an important aspect to the film and I kept going out and over that time, um, I thought, I my partner, who's also my producer, who's also an editor normally, <laughs> um, she was like, no, this is, an, this is a feature and I, I kept sort of denying it, but working in the way of a feature, like the way I was editing and the, the way things were unfolding definitely fit more within a feature. And I thought, oh, you know, that she's right. And I think as far as knowing what the film's about, it kind of just unfolded slowly. I think I started to see themes, started to just think, okay, I, I need to keep going back and show time pass and show how the landscape's affecting Eileen in addition to how Eileen's affecting the landscape. And that kind of became mm -hmm. a big part of the story. So, I'd just also like to follow up really quickly on um, your sense of responsibility toward Eileen. Because mm -hmm. that's something that uh, both you and Shannon, producer, mm -hmm. impressed upon me multiple times mm -hmm. in terms of um, using they, them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and being respectful mm -hmm. and being very careful on that. And, and, I, and, and which is... Of course, absolutely admirable and and very impressive. But as a filmmaker, sometimes our you know our our relationship with our subjects can kind of get into a gray area, mm -hmm. either with friendships or this protective uh, you know you know kind of thought toward them. And yet, we need to be a filmmaker. We need to still view it as as you know a subject. Mm -hmm. Can you talk discuss that a little bit? Um, yeah, I think for me, it's really important um, to maintain a trust with the person you're filming or working with. I mean, it's, it's a really vulnerable position to be in to let someone film you. And I think that just was most important to me. I think, you know, I let Eileen watch sort of the fine cut. And I thought if there's something they really are not happy with, we'll have a discussion about it. And I, if, if it, they're still unhappy, then I'm going to take it out. And I don't know that, I, uh, you know, I know that that's not always the case and it can't work out that way all the time, but it was for this film, I thought, you know, this isn't, it doesn't have to be this one thing. And I really want Eileen to feel good about it and that, and then I'll feel good about it, you know? And so, yeah, that was important to me. And we did develop a friendship, you know, we didn't know each other in the beginning, but one, you know, we developed one over time. So. 
Mm, I, I am really glad you're talking about kind of being the guardian of Eileen's story because <laughs> the the great irony for me of this movie was when people hear their story, it's like, you're living alone in a ghost town. That's so scary. But the truth of the matter is when people come to yeah. the land, that's mm -hmm. when they're in the most danger seemingly, right? <laughs> so um, were you ever nervous or was Eileen ever nervous that maybe this film coming out is going to encourage more people mm -hmm. to come and try mm -hmm. to mess with the land, or maybe it'll encourage people to go to this Airbnb, which I'm definitely yes. in. <laughs> I knew you would want to yeah, go with I'm me. In. Yeah. yeah. Booking quite right away. Well, it's funny because I think in the beginning, I was a little more worried about that, about um, naming the town. You know, I was a little worried would that be, make things more dangerous or whatever for Eileen. And at first I wasn't going to, but then Eileen started to do some interviews with people. I mean, quite a few people who work in media of some sort have taken interest in Eileen mm -hmm. while I was filming. And mm -hmm. so there were a few little articles written or um, Vice did a thing. <laughs> um, and once they did that, I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess all in. You know, I guess it's fine. And um, it's up to Eileen, you know. And so if Eileen is okay with that, then that then I won't worry too much about it. Um, so, and then, yeah, the, the, as far as getting more traffic to Airbnb, I hope so, but they've had some problems with Airbnb in general. Um, cause Airbnb. Cause it's, it's Airbnb. Airbnb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so who knows? But yeah, I think I, I'm sure, I'm sure there's ways in which that attention is, has made Eileen more vulnerable, but also at the same time as maybe drawn some people to Eileen that have ended up being good people for them to have in their life. So mm -hmm. it's a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to the story of how you found Eileen, mm -hmm. because I think at the beginning of this film, it felt like they didn't really want to be found. Mm. And and I want to know how they said yes. Yeah. And yes, of course, you can film my whole story. Fine. <laughs> totally fine. Yeah. Um, well, it kind of, uh, I was, so I'm friends with Eileen's sister. And uh, so before I knew Eileen, I knew Eileen's sister. Mm. And we were talking and I was saying how much I miss the landscape of Utah and I would love to do a project there, but I don't know what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Renee was said, "Oh, Eileen just moved into a ghost town. My sister. <laughs> Funny you should mention <laughs> that. Like, Here you go. <laughs> wow. I know. Dropped in your lap. I know. And I was like, well, what? All right. So <laughs> wow. can I get their number? And and I did. And um, we hit it off. We talked for like two hours, and it felt good. And you know, and I just said if." Let's just see. I'll come out if at any point this doesn't feel good. We'll stop, and um, and that's how it happened, and and it worked out. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I think you know, I think Eileen partially is a very um, kind of just wants to do their own thing and not be bothered, but at the same time, they do love people, and I think it's just um. You know, there's a little bit of some contradictions there, but also they're human. You know, I think sometimes they just want – they don't want people to come in and just, like, take a photo and leave. You know, they want mm -hmm. a certain level of mm -hmm. um, respect. respect and, yeah, common ground or, or something like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, the film is already um, getting some nice notices. <laughs> um, and one of the things that, that a lot of people are pointing out is the cinematography mm -hmm. of the film, that uh, there's a there's – a, a nice groundswell of people really, really being into how the film was shot. It's your directorial debut. 
We also shot it. And, you know, and, and when you're shooting a documentary, of course, you're trying to get information um, and you're not always thinking, well, this is a beautiful shot or, or they have this. Um, talk about you shooting the film. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I have a background in photography. And so mm -hmm. I kind of got into film that way, I guess. Um, but uh, it's funny because in the beginning I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm not doing this right because I'm thinking about the shots first. <laughs> but then, mm -hmm. you know, then you start to, to get into it more and also get used to the scenery and kind of then focus a little more on the story. But uh, yeah, I just really wanted to sh uh, have the landscape be as much of a character as, as Eileen. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I thought, okay, vast open desert space. I want to film it as much as possible on a locked off shot, very still and in, in, you know, incorporate a lot of wide shots to kind of get, hope, hopefully have the viewer feel that space, you know, feel that openness. And um, so that was, so that was the, the approach. <laughs> well, again, uh, the film, the title of the film is Cisco Kid. And of course I'm a huge fan of it, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but others are as well. And uh, again, screening at Slamdance and we've been talking to the director, Emily K. Allen. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This episode is made possible by Ann Wang, Natalie Gamble, the Papa Lowdown Agency, the Friesen Family, Jenny Yang, Fleetwood, a.k.a. Nico, Melanie Pena, Lauren Lim, Catherine Tulio, Courtney Kita, Myla Blog, Anita Tabora Rodriguez, Arabella DeLuco, Chloe Jackman of Chloe Jackman Studios, Shauna Festi, Stephanie Walton, Lisa Shad, Antoinette Tabora, and Storied San Francisco. Thank you so much for donating, and a special shout out to the Slamdance Film Festival for providing us a recording home in Park City. John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief of FilmsGoneWild.com. Here with the Bitch Talk team, Angela Tabora and Aaron Lim. We are taping out of the Treasure Mountain Inn at the top of Main Street, talking about Sundance and Slamdance films. This one is Motel Drive documentary screening at Slamdance. We have with us the director, Brendan Garrity, and we have the composer, Zach Wright. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks Happy so much. All right. We always start this off by having our director introduce our audience to the film. They haven't seen it as yet. So tell us about Motel Drive. Uh, yeah, so Motel Drive, it's uh, Fresno, California, halfway in between Los Angeles and San Francisco. It's sort of a breadbasket rural ag community in California. It's a strip of uh, post-World War II motels, um, about 15 motels, one-eighth mile strip. Uh, 150 families live in these motels. There's a lot of... Um, open season sex workers there, a lot of drug trafficking, um, a lot of sex offenders placed there by the state of California. It's got a lot going on. It's a rough place for these kids to grow up. And it's just sort of a street level vantage uh, verite documentary of one kid's lived experience. You watch them grow up from 11 to 18 and sort of come out the other side. You started filming in 2015 and ended in 2022. Um, when did you know it was time to stop? 
Uh, great question. I've been workshopping this one. <laughs> practice here. Practice this is some good practice. <laughs> it's, so this is my, my, what I have been saying is, so th this, this sort of had uh, two phases, I say. Era 1.0 <laughs> was me and I had a, a friend uh, who was going through a divorce at the time. He had a Canon 5D camera. And I, I just kind of on a whim went up there and was like, Preston, let's just go up and check this place out. It was a very dangerous environment. The greatest hits I was assumed to be either a pedophile or an undercover cop uh, is what everybody thought I was there. Mm. It's very dangerous. You know, you have sex work. Uh, the, there's the a, a gang, which is sort of the Fresno equivalent of like the Los Angeles Bloods or Crips, the mm. Fresno Bulldogs. There's a lot of pimps there and so you know not it's a sort of hot environment to whip out a camera um i didn't have permission to film in these motels or anything like that so we had some hairy experiences in the early days and so it was just you know we just there was a man chasing a woman we're like on golden state it's golden hour and you know like 4 30 a.m sun's coming up and, uh, you know, a man brandishing a gun is chasing a woman just screaming bloody murders like, mm -hmm. oh, my God, let's like, get in the car press and let's go. We had a few experiences like that. And then I didn't have insurance or anything. This is a little doc that could, you know, so then I just did it myself. It was me handheld with like a monopod just stealing what I could later on around 20, like 18 ish or something. I, I you know, once things changed, mm -hmm. let's say, and the family moved um, then it wasn't as dicey, but I was working in TV production and just kind of rolling off shows in between gigs in LA. I'd go up. And so I just amassed this mountain of footage on my hard drive up until like COVID mm -hmm. basically. And um, I hadn't done an assembly or anything. So I just didn't know what I had. Um, it was <laughs> a lot of anxiety. <laughs> Did I, am I wasting my thirties? You know, um, <laughs> I'm still asking that question. Uh, uh, and so it was just this black box existential thing. I'm like, what am I doing? And so once things, you know, some professionals got involved, I did a lot of the cutting myself. But once things took a little more shape, I saw that I had a thing there. I'm like, okay, I have a thing. I don't know if this thing is a, a true feature, um, but I think it might be. And that was kind of coinciding with the time where I guess, I don't know, I shouldn't do the spoiler thing, but like, um, how should I say? I, once the, the, the Shaw family, Jason and Deandra, the parents, mother and father were having glimpses and windows of sobriety, um, I, I saw that, uh, you know, a lot of times, I don't know, it's my, my personal opinion, but, you know, one's interior state of whether it's affected by drugs or neuroses or whatever is reflected in the outside with clothes or whatever your environment laying around. And so I just saw these sort of very visible, sometimes subtle, sometimes not changes. And that also were, you know, kind of coincided with changes in Justin and kind of being a little more active in sports and just kind of these little life things. And so to end it, I, I it was, I, man, I, I I would just being in this environment and then coming back to a city like Los Angeles, it's just night and day. Mm -hmm. And I remember like it's a three and a half hour drive. You know, I'm just blown out. It's like a hundred and ten freaking degrees in Fresno. And I just took a long bath, and I was just feeling 
anxious, lost and sad. Like, what am I going to do for the ending? And then shortly thereafter, um, I guess without giving it away, um, Justin was kind of doing better in school and kind of reaching an end point. And I had just obviously been watching him grow up so long. So kind of in that, you know, and at that point, it wasn't obvious to me, uh, you know, because there was so much going on that this was about one family and one kid. But once that became obvious, let's say six years on, it was, you know, I was like, okay, well, this is really Justin and his story and his journey. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, with the the thing that Mm -hmm. happens in the, that that was Mm -hmm. when it, yeah, but that, that was like almost, I don't know when that happened, like 2021 or something. It was a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't know. Hmm. Yeah. Zach, I want to turn to you. We have the Shaw family. Um, we have this city. Um, what kind of sounds, what kind of feel, what kind of tone did you want to take to represent them properly and, and why? So I think when I when I came on board, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Brendan, but it seemed you were pretty open to like the, what to do with the score at that time. Yeah. Yeah, completely. So, um, so my initial thought, you know, I mean, I saw some, some footage of this, you know, these beautiful desolate landscapes in this, in this rundown town of Fresno. And, um, and I kind of connected it to, uh, to like the Bakersfield sound of like, like California country music. And, um, and, uh, I'm a big fan of there's a Brian Eno song called uh, called a uh, um, deep blue day. That's uh, basically Brian Eno style ambient music with a beautiful pedal steel guitar music in it. I love that song. Yeah, it's beautiful. Daniel Lanois. Shout out to Daniel Lanois, the guy who played pedal steel on that. But uh, um, so I kind of wanted to do something like that. And I, I don't play the pedal steel guitar, but I bought one for the project. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that like at that point, I remember Zach saying it was like, we were talking about these hybrid things and kind of like country influences. And I think it was one of our first phone calls and you were like, you do know what I do, right? (laughs) (laughs) You don't remember because, you know, you do a lot of like synth, like, you know, stuff. And we were in that country conversation. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. It's like, I'm not a country band. I'm not a a country musician in any, any form at all. But, uh, yeah, I bought this, this instrument and, uh, learned, learn how to play it uh for the movie I actually bought it before i agreed to do the movie because i wanted to do the movie so that's that's the uh, first first time i'm telling you that so you know i was set on doing it so like i, I want to buy the same start to practice um so yeah so in, long story short i i did um you know this kind of uh, ambient desolate country music sort sort of ambient uh country leaning ambient music for it so so yeah it was, it was really fun it's great great film to work on you know, um, Brennan, you and I talked about the, the film before you even got to uh, Park City. And one of the things we talked about, like the running time is what? Is it 61? Uh, yeah, six, yeah, 61 and some change, yeah. And so I remember, uh, you know, talking, and which I, I think it's, it's great to give us uh, uh, an ability to discuss what's in a filmmaker's head when we're talking about the anxiety over running times of our films. And I asked you at that time, <laughs> I said, you know, well, you know, uh, you know, are, are you possibly going to expand it to make it more of a feature length or are you going to shrink it to make it more of a TV length? And, and, you know, and, and I remember you, um, distinctly you going, the best film is where it's at right now, which is, which, which was a great answer because it was like, well, you know, listen, business is business. But if I have as a filmmaker, uh, an idea of, storytelling of where my story 
goes and, and where it ends, which was which we were talking about in the, your first question from Aaron, that is the best answer because it's like, well, listen, you know, people are negotiating with me to give me a big freaking check. All right, then we can talk about it at that time. But right now, my movie is this. I would like you to 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 expand upon that a little bit more. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> hitting all the my anxiety buttons. It's yeah. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> awesome. Super chill pod, guys. Yep. Yep. Super, super chill. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I do stand by that, but it's kind of like I don't know. Maybe I'll talk out of both sides of my mouth here. So. So I guess to get at that, like just for some context, this this is definitely a little doc that could. And what I mean by that is like, you know, it was I, I, I worked on this. Uh, it, it was kind of this series of events I worked. I was um, I, I worked at this this uh, sort of comedy alt comedy house called Absolutely Productions. And they just do a lot of these guys, Tim and Eric, a lot of weird comedy mm -hmm. stuff like Eric Andre and Nathan for you. Mm -hmm. I was I was working on uh, the, this HBO show, The Rehearsal, in 2019, and I was like, I started in the summer and worked on it right up until Christmas, and we all know what happened after that. <laughs> and so at that, and so I I got some of that sweet sweet HBO money. It was the first time in my <laughs> career, and it felt so nice. And it went right into my checking account, and then right back out <laughs> for this. And then some, you know, my, like my dad chipped in money, my mom, uh, you know, and just friends. It was just and it was such a beautiful thing to feel supported in that way. And just friends come through after all that time. So the runtime, you know, it was just we very constrained resources. I mean, I'm sure you hear this a lot with slam dancers in particular, but you do with whatever that saying is like what you can with what you got at the time. And and that. You know, I had a rough cut that was 80 minutes. And then uh, one of uh, my other producers on this, he's not here yet, but coming, Christopher Stout, um, is he's a fantastic. He, he's the editor and producer on this. And he got rid of all my shitty shots and kind of <laughs> saved this movie. And so, so, so that 80 went down to 60 because of Chris and he got rid of all my, you know, the junk and the fat. You know, 60 minutes. And as we were doing, you know, I said to Chris at the beginning, as I saw it going down, like 70 minutes, 60, I'm like, oh man, this is getting this weird, like purgatory of short and feature. <laughs> and this is my first time doing this and coming out of COVID and how the market is and everything. We're just in this weird time. I just, I did have a lot of uncertainty about that and hand wringing. And, um, you know, and at the end of the day, like what I said to you is, I mean, that that's true. But the other side of that is there is a ton of stuff on the cutting room floor. And, you know, this is just me projecting. But I do at the same time have a sense if like I was able to pick up some more scratch and uh, follow up because there's there's many other people in this mm -hmm. world that I've shot interviews with that th there's just only so much time and money. Right. I think we could probably get this for another like at least 10 minutes and have it feel a little more traditional like a feature um but you know it's yeah I, i'm a, a it's a my number one like gripe especially with films these days like everything is that martin scorsese three-hour movie you're just <laughs> falling asleep mm -hmm. just like this is so freaking boring this could be like half the length and so that's like a maxim for me it's just make it 
what it is and this and so with the time and resources yeah that's i really believe that uh i often uh when we i talk about this with other uh, film reviewers and critics friends of mine i say whenever i get a um a screening link of a film that's uh, 75 minutes or less mm -hmm. i want to send that filmmaker a muffin basket <laughs> yeah. yes. 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 i agree <laughs> so exciting it's so exciting uh but but as you know, but but again, in, in the conversation we had, you know, I, I mean, I think the storytelling is wonderful at the length that it is. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's incredibly effective. And again, I praised you up and down the street when we talked about it last time. Again, the film is Motel Drive, the documentary screening at Slam Dance. We've been talking with the director Brendan Garrity, composer Zach Wright. It's been great having you guys on the show. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for joining us on today's show. You can find more information about this episode in our show notes. If you're missing us, you can visit us at bitchtalkpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter and buy us a cup of coffee. Did you know we're also on the radio? You can find us at bff.fm. And lastly, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Only the coolest bitches are doing it. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. Learn more at podcast.bff.fm. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever.